Hello everyone, it's Aidan Lang here. This time I'm talking about our next production, which is Verdi's Aida. This is an immensely popular piece. Why is that? I think the scale is, number one, the fact that it is a grand opera, in many ways the grandest of grand operas, is very attractive. It's not often we get to see operas of that scale. That's a key to its popularity. I'm often asked, are there elephants on stage? Well, there are no elephants in the score. Uh, having a one of the world's most dangerous animals on our stage would not be a wise idea. But, you know, this piece isn't about elephants. I never quite understand productions where vast hordes of treasures are brought in because they haven't sacked Ethiopia. They've cut off an attack on Egypt. It's one of those instances where those arena productions tend to completely distort the reality of the situation. What Verdi wrote was some handmaidens bringing in what are some trinkets, not whopping great big gold icons. The narrative of Aida is fairly clean and clear-cut. It also has a lot of very memorable musical moments. It has big choruses, ballet sequences in it. It is the piece which most of all feeds the conventional stereotype of what a big opera should be. And that's not a bad thing either. Having said that, we must be careful. The danger is Aida gets blown out of all proportion. The Carrier Opera House, where it was first presented, was a relatively small building. It, it, it wasn't Verona. So if you have these vast arena stages, which are great for the spectacle of a triumph scene, but when you have a duet with just two people on stage, you lose all that intimacy. And most of the opera really is this intimate, intense series of encounters between Aida, Radames, and Amneris. The real strength of Aida is that embedded in this grand opera framework is a very intimate tale. What always surprises me when I hear Aida done well is, is how much soft singing there is. We always think of the loud moments of Aida, but a lot of the writing for that character herself requires delicate pianos and, and sensitivity. There's a very, very human love triangle, essentially, at the core of a much wider political framework, which is what gives rise to the grandeur of the, of the opera. Aida is a challenge for any opera company to put on purely in terms of numbers. It always boils down to numbers, and this production, directed by Francesca Zambello, is in fact a co-production. It originated in San Francisco Opera, and then Washington National Opera did it in September, and we're now doing it in, in May. So it took three opera companies and their resources to get a production of this scale on. That's the bald mathematics of opera economies today. It has large choruses, onstage musicians, a relatively large orchestra, dancers. This all tops up, and these all need rehearsing, they all need costuming. And so it becomes a challenge, purely at a resource level, to provide operas of this scale on a regular basis. And certainly, collaborating with our partners in San Francisco and D.C. makes it manageable for all three companies spectacle for spectacle's sake. That's certainly not what Verdi intended. But at the same time, he was writing for a special occasion. He was writing for commission. And part of that decision to present what's fundamentally a French grand opera was due to the circumstances of the expectations of that commission. There are an awful lot of myths and legends about Aida, so I guess we should put some of them straight. No, it wasn't commissioned to open the Suez Canal. Actually, what happened was Verdi was approached to write an, an anthem 
for that ceremony, which he turned down. But it was the intention that Verdi should write an opera for the opening of the Opera House in Cairo. Egypt was, of course, at the time in the 1860s, 1870s, was a offshoot of the Ottoman Empire and was ruled by, I guess we'd call it the equivalent of a viceroy, the, the Khedive. In order to celebrate the opening of the Opera House, the Khedive, Ismail Pasha, was a great fan of Verdi and desperately wanted Verdi to write a new opera to celebrate the theatre. Verdi was reticent. He was very, very fussy about what projects he took on in his later years. And it took persuasion, especially from the director of the Opera Comique, Camille Ducle, who had worked with him on Don Carlos as a co-librettist, to win him round to find a suitable subject. It's not totally clear where the subject came from. It's generally ascribed to the Egyptologist and sort of director of the relatively new Museum of Antiquities in Cairo, a Frenchman called Auguste Mariette, who concocted a scenario. Auguste's scenario was then fleshed out and turned into a libretto by the librettist of Verdi's choice, Antonio Ghislanzoni, who also was the librettist for revisions made to The Force of Destiny. Verdi was, first of all, really interested in the Egyptian aspects. He wanted to know details of the ceremonies. One amusing thing is he was very concerned that the singers would not have beards. You know, Italian opera singers of the 19th century tend to sport exceedingly lavish beards, and he was told that Egyptian men of the time didn't have beards. So this was a real sticking point for him. It was a no-beard opera. As he went on, once he got into the meat of the subject, and once he warmed to the human story that it's clear, as we see from some of his letters, how his real heart went into the, the human narrative rather than the Egyptian detail. We need to understand and remember that even the study of antiquities was a pretty new thing in those days. You know, we take it for granted with our Tutankhamun exhibitions, which go around the world. There's no self-respecting museum which doesn't have a department of antiquities. But this was new in the middle of the 19th century. Verdi wanted to be as current with the thinking as possible. It's very easy for us to think that it's, all, it's, it's about being Egyptian. And really this piece is not about being Egyptian. It's a piece about the notion of patriotism and especially the pull between duty to your country and duty to your feelings and the struggle which both Radames and Aida feel and are torn between those two conflicting Emotions, And that's really, for Verdi, the reason why he wrote the piece. When you're in a theatre, you're grabbed first and foremost by the human tales. What one looks for in casting aids to make it interesting is people who are stage animals and who are alert to the textual nuances and can make characters who can, certainly Aida and Radames, can on the surface seem a little bit less than three-dimensional and can really inhabit these characters and bring out the inner struggles and the battle between duty and personal feeling which is also inherent in, in the plot. And the third character in the mix is of course Amneris, the most interesting character, the one who lives on, lives on in agony about the death which she has brought on to the man she loves, Radames. 
one of the most remarkable things about this score is it actually demands something which would have been very unusual in the 19th century, and that's a, a split-level set, which was not really within the painted drop cloths of standard 19th century theatrical form. Opera is full of love triangles, and this is a fascinating instance where we see it visually. We see the three people in a triangle vertically rather than just three people on the same horizontal plane or on a stage. That Verdi himself came up with the concept of a split level shows that subconsciously he was, he was seeing this relationship graphically between the three characters. Visually, we have the two dying lovers in the tomb below, and Amneris is written to be above, and we see her agony as she has entombed the man she loves so dearly. And she lives on, and she lives on with her pain. We feel her pain at the end, more so in a sense than the peace which Aida and Radames have found in death. It's a very open ending, which I think is also why it's intriguing and debatable as to what the piece is about and what it means, and therefore part of its enduring fascination. What's interesting to ask is, to what nation does this opera belong? On the one hand, it's actually modelled on a French grand opera. Its inspiration came from Paris. He, he had written uh, Don Carlos, he'd written the Sicilian Vespers, one aspect he didn't like about French Grand Opera was that the composer was constricted by the demands of the genre itself. Verdi was much more free-thinking than that. So, in a sense, what he's written is a French Grand Opera, but filtered through the aesthetic and musical language of an Italian. It's an Italian opera, it's not a French opera. And is it Egyptian? Well, yes, he puts a little tinter of something which is an invented Egyptian musical style. How could anyone know what Egyptian music <laughs> uh, sounded like in the years BC? It's entirely fabricated, but it's interesting how that aspect of what one might term local colour simply doesn't exist in Nabucco, which is clearly an Italian opera. I think one of the really fascinating things about Aida is the question of what's it about? At the end of the day, this is an opera about what it is to be patriotic. But what is fascinating is the way, I think, at the time of composition for Verdi, that had changed. There are a lot of similarities between Aida and the much earlier work, Nabucco. We performed Nabucco two or three years ago, and I think we explained very clearly how, with the rise of Italian nationalism, the nationalists found a flag carrier, if you like, for their cause within Nabucco, and specifically the feelings and cause of the Israelite people. What is happening in the nationalist movement in Italy in between Nabucco and Aida? What happened is in 1861 was the unification of Italy. There's something of an irony that in Nabucco, the big number is Vapensiero, where our sympathies go to the Israelite people. Whereas the big tune in Aida is the Triumphal March.
which is very militaristic and written in the style of, of a conquering imperialist force, opposed to where one thinks Verdi's natural sympathies lay. Within the monumentalism of the triumph scene, it's hard not to feel that Verdi is in some way showing the darker side to imperialism when patriotism takes its next stage and moves towards institutionalized national fervor as opposed to a national fervor born of an oppressed people. Exactly where the audience's sympathy lies, of course, lies with you, the audience. Verdi's sympathies really lie with the character of Aida. In Verdi, already 10 years after the unification of Italy, what we see is what always follows in the aftermath of a great struggle and an eventual release and formation of a republic is that the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts of government kick in. Whereas 20 years before Italy is formed, we see in Nabucco the patriotism and the side Verdi's taking in that opera. Here, I think he's much more ambivalent, and I think his sympathies go to the natural underdog, which is Aida and the Ethiopians. Although he's writing a commission for Egypt, built into the work is a criticism of the imperialist tendencies of Egypt. This production by Francesco Zambello, I think, makes that very clear. The Egyptians are costumed with a hint of sort of later 19th century pomp of imperialism, whereas the Ethiopians are costumed more in the light of insurgents. The production makes that very evident for the audience. And so I think this is why the piece is complex, to put your finger on really what it's about. From a cast perspective, it is a challenge because you need four really good Verdian singers. In Aida, you need fundamentally a dramatic soprano, but one who is capable of moments of great subtlety and fragility. Amneris is one of the great mezzo roles, and I think it's, it's the role that's probably the singers most enjoy doing. Radames is an interesting character. It needs a tenor who is at one strong and heroic, but is also capable of flexibility and nuanced emotion as well. In Amanazro, the father to Aida, again, we need a baritone, really, of the of a Rigoletto mold. You need a top Verdian baritone with a high sesostura, with a dramatic intensity, which we expect of Verdi baritone roles. So, although the singers are obviously out there because the piece is performed so often, but nonetheless, you do need to get the casting right so that the piece is served vocally. As Aida, it's my great pleasure to give a debut to Leah Crocetto, who actually sang this production in San Francisco and, in fact, helped out in DC as well, where I think one of their ideas fell sick. And of course, she's coming back to us uh, for Il Trovatore as well. So it's great to give her a debut. And she is partnered up front by Alexandra Lobianco, who, of course, was with us as Donna Anna in 2014 and has really made great strides. She's made a triumphant debut at the Vienna State Opera as Leonora in Fidelio. Has sung this role before, and it's great really to feature a young dramatic soprano who's really now taking off and, and seeing her career propelled. So, we've got two really good young singers who I think are age appropriate to, to the character, 
and it's very exciting to feature them both on our stage. Our two tenors, both also making their debut, Brian Jade, actually also sang a role in San Francisco, as it turned out. He is really now beginning to take off on a, on a worldwide stage, so we were very lucky to catch him and to book him at this stage. Brian is partnered by a Canadian tenor making his Seattle Opera debut, David Pomeroy. This is a role debut for David. He's been singing in Europe, making his debut as Floristan and Tannhäuser. And again, we feel it's just the right point in his career to take on this role. Our two Amanazras are Gordon Hawkins. Uh, it's great to have Gordon back. And of course, he actually made his Seattle Opera debut as Amanazra back in 1992. And of course, we saw him quite recently as Nabucco. Alfred Walker also comes back. He um, was with us for Flying Dutchman, as well as playing the villains in The Tales of Hoffman back in 2014. So it's great to have two faces who we know. But we have two debut makers for Amneris as well. Miliana Nikolic is a Serbian-Australian. I've, I've seen her do this role fantastically in Sydney. And she was over singing at the Met and just flew back to Australia via Seattle and thought she'd come and audition for us. Well, she's, she's something else, I tell you. So she was delighted to come and be with us. And a debut also for Elena Gaburi, who's no stranger to this role. She's sung many times, including at Verona and throughout Europe. She's likewise quite a stage animal, so we, we know we're in very good hands. And the final, very important role is of, of Ramphis, the high priest. We once more have Daniel Samegi on our stage, so another Australian, in fact. This is a role um, which I think suits Dan's presence on stage so well, and it's going to be fantastic with him in it. Our conductor, John Fiore. Well, for those of you with long memories, know that John started out when he was 14 playing his repetitor on the ring cycle um, and did so for many years. He's an extraordinary musician. He has conducted everything in his career. Has been in Europe for a long time in, in uh, the Deutsche Oper am Rhein in Dusseldorf and then more recently as a music director in uh, Oslo in, in Norway and where she, I think, left last year and is coming to conduct more back in the States. So it's like a, a welcome home for John. John's father, of course, was George Fiore, who was the chorus master here at Seattle Opera for many, many years. So I think John would admit that he has a spiritual home here in the Pacific Northwest. It's also great to have on our stage another Francesca Zambello production, and of course, Porgy and Bess, uh, which begins next season, is hers as well. Francesca, over the years, has done many things for us. One remembers her Billy Bard, Florencia in El Amazonas, War and Peace, I think, is the production which so many people have asked, when are you bringing back War and Peace? I have to say, I'm afraid the sets were destroyed many, many years ago, but the piece lives long in people's memory. And I think Francesca is brilliant at large-scale productions. In her work, she always finds that balance between the detail of the work with the individual characters, but is especially impressive at putting that work within the context of big scenes, big issues uh, embedded in those scenes. It's great, really, to have this production by Francesca on our stage. And one feature of it is the choreography by the highly acclaimed contemporary choreographer Jessica Lang. No relation. Jessica's work is brilliant in this. It brings to it a sort of lyricism. The dances are celebratory. 
it's not just in the written ballet sequences. We see the dancers at one or two other moments as well. It gives a curiously poetic quality to an action which can feel rather sort of military and strong. I think it's a really beautiful balance, the use of movement and dance is a beautiful balance against some of the way we perceive this work. It also features a fabulous routine for nine boy dancers. We don't often have those on our stage. They're part of the entertainment for the, the ladies in Amneris's circle. The lads have to be somewhere between classical and hip-hop, really. The dance moves are almost from bar to bar, change style. It's very, very physical. I've, I've spoken to one or two of them. I said, yeah, you're in for a lot of rehearsal. It adds a very interesting little gloss to, while the men are away at the battle, these boys are dressed up in uniforms. They're being groomed also in this highly military society. They're being groomed to be the soldiers of tomorrow. And, of course, we can't finish without talking about the design Interesting concept here because we actually have two set designers. The scenic framework is by the highly distinguished American designer Michael Yergin. But Michael's works are filled in with panels designed by what I think one might term a graffiti artist who goes by the name of Retna, a Los Angeles-based artist. And these images are really inspired by the hieroglyphics of Egyptian art but are in no way copies of that, and they have their own language. The visual motif, if you like, is captured brilliantly, and there's a very vibrant use of colour. So it's like a modern take on the ancient source of the story. And some of the costumes, especially those for the ladies by Anita Yavich, are very, very beautiful. Amneris and her court especially capture the sort of exquisite luxury which you would you'd feel, especially in a 19th century context. And at the same time, she captures very well the imperialist force behind the Egyptians and the insurgent quality of the Ethiopian forces. So the military battle, if you like, is very clearly defined by the costuming as, as well. So that's Aida. It, it's a fascinating work. It's, it's a work which I think, when you really probe into it deeper than its surface raises all sorts of questions about where Verdi's allegiances were, what are we meant to feel at the end with this open ending of, of a suffering character. It's a work which has been performed consistently since its, its premiere and um, we're thrilled to have it on our stage and um, I hope you enjoy it.